Listen, before we start, I want to tell the world how much of a shit service Network Solutions provides and how much I hate that company. Exciting podcast. We went into this last time, right? Did I say that Network Solutions is going to like charge me 40 bucks or something for a domain I owned for like six years or whatever? Uh, More than that? Sounds kind of vaguely familiar. So when I started the company, right, I had Antero.com and AndreButo.com, right? And... There was like nothing around. So I went to Network Solutions and I, I bought those there, right? So it was like $10 or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And um, Garrett, do I have you on? You there? Yep. Okay, yep. sorry. So we're, we're here with Garrett Diamond. Diamond, is how you pronounce Diamond? it. Diamond? Indeed. Right, okay. We're just jumping right into Andre's crazy story. That's it's not crazy. It's not crazy. <laughs> it's this crazy. Is, this is useful information for people. So there, are, there are no more people going to there are no more people going through network solutions, but just in case you're the la- you're the last. Person. I was the last holdout. So 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 they said back in August your thing is expiring in January. So I'm like, all right, I got time. Whatever, you know how they send a million things, whatever. Yeah, months in advance. So forty dollars a year. Of course, I'm not going to renew. I'm going to transfer it out. Like you guys are crazy. Forty dollars a year for the main I pay nine dollars for whatever. And it's just the dot com. It's just my name dot com and then dot com, right? I don't know why they're charging literally 10 times more than whatever than anybody else, but because they can all of a sudden two weeks ago, your domain has been renewed. I'm like, uh, what do you mean? My domain has been renewed. They renew that shit for five years plus <laughs> plus privacy two months ahead of expiration. Just so That's I don't awesome. go ahead and turn off auto renewal on that thing. That's like a $500 bill for, for, for like, otherwise would be like, 50 bucks for five years. (laughs) So I called them up over there. First of all, I looked it up and like, that's their standard practice. And they were sued for it because before that was their standard (laughs) practice. Plus a $30 restocking fee. If you get a refund because bits need to be restocked. (laughs) So I called them up. So they, they were sued over the 30% restocking fee. So they don't do that anymore, but you still have to call them up because there's no email support. There's no chat support. You got to call them up and, and start talking about refunds. And they're like, they're already ready for it, right? They're like, they have a whole department whose job it is to charge you two months early. They know that refund calls are coming in. They're ready to deal with it. So it's like their whole business has shifted from providing reasonable domains at a normal cost to charging 10 times as much, hoping that people don't notice and then fight them when they call you to get a refund. So I got a refund <sighs> on the phone. And I transferred that thing over to Namecheap. But now DNS is up in, you know, in the ether and, and, and the name servers are up in the ether and everything is up in the ether for like five or six business days between all the steps that everybody needs to take for this thing to sync back up to a new hosting provider. But I'm just saying, Network Solutions, up there in my shit list next to Apple. <laughs> <laughs> Except Apple. Uh, I have a couple at uh, a couple key ones at register.com, which is the same thing basically where it's like 35 bucks a year. And <clears throat> so I don't know. I've been, some of them are like, I had like 10 years to begin with. So some of them are coming up in the next couple of years where I guess I'll have to move them, but it's such a pain to move them. That's, a, that's why they got you. Cause you know, like homespot.com, there's a bunch of stuff on that. I think I actually did move that one um i actually did move that one fairly recently because we had this other thing going on but userscape.com i'm pretty sure is there so it's like you gotta mess with it all the yeah, name servers and all that crap sleaze bags sleaze bags all of them they genius used car sales on the internet 
You got any uh, any domains, Garrett, at the uh, yeah, old time I, internet shops? I spent a couple of years or a couple of years ago. I spent some time and invested to get absolutely everything over to DN Simple. Oh, and time it's well been, spent. It's been heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. I have like, let's see. I have Register.com. I have GoDaddy. I have Hover. I have Namecheap. Yeah, Yahoo. And still? I have Yahoo domains. Yeah. yeah, I got some Yahoo domains. So I have at least at least five registrars currently so i gotta i gotta do something it's out of control it's it's worth biting the bullet one one weekend or something just getting it over getting it all to one place has made such a difference it would be nice because then you don't even know what's expiring what's not you know stuff's (laughs) expiring all over the place and you get the 40 emails but you ignore all them because you get tons of them and horrible not to mention just a better user experience because right all those older providers Uh, are just resting on their laurels whereas you know, all these newer providers are really, really doing some cool stuff and making it really easy to manage everything. Yeah, I don't get that. Like, why is register.com look exactly the same as it did in 2003? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. How could that even be the case? I don't understand. I guess, I don't know. They have a call center of people. They don't have any people to, like, improve their website. doesn't make yeah. any sense. Yeah. Unless they're spending all their money uh, on support. I guess. On the call center to get to do the refunds for the auto renewals that you didn't want. Bootstrap. I want to sell some domains. Bootstrapped. What are you going to sell? I don't know. I want to sell some domains. I got a domain. I got a, my most valuable probably domain. I've kind of penciled in for a, a project, but I have a few others kicking around that I should throw them up on Cedo or whatever that, how you say that. What, what was that thing you hoped Donald Trump would buy from you? Oh, extremevetting.com. Oh, okay. I thought it was taco trucks in every corner. I got the extremevetting.com still. I don't know. I'm holding on to that. I don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. Garrett. Welcome to Bootstrap. Thanks. How, how are you? I am doing great. Good. So, so we're playing with the format here. You're going to be our guinea pig. Great. So Love Bootstrap it. traditionally has been me and Andre just like talking quasi about business. And then, yeah. then it's gotten to be less about business. Now we're doing more interviews. So we've done a couple interviews. But we're, we're playing with the interview format a little bit. We're going to try kicking off with some non businessy and then work towards the businessy. So Yeah, the whole the whole point start. of doing more interviews is that <laughs> we stop bullshitting and actually do bootstrap <laughs> topics and we're gonna start off over the interviews with non bootstrap topics. But whatever. <laughs> you know what the side <laughs> effect flavor though. You it's know what the flavor. side effect of doing all these interviews are? That we don't we do them all in like a two day span. Here's how here's how the sausage is made people. We do them all in like a two day spam span, right? And then I have them all on my hard drive. Now I have like 37 gigs worth of interviews <laughs> sitting here. I can't move them anywhere. And I, I, my whole hard drive is filled up now. That's what Andre's willing to sacrifice for you, dear listeners. Hard drive space. That's, it's very, it's, it's a sensitive topic with me. Well, you got the drop, it's all on Dropbox. We got a lot of, we got a lot of episodes now. We're up at, what is this one? Like 80 something? It's like I, don't I don't even know what it's going to be. It's like 86, 87, something like that. Something like that. We should figure that out. But anyway. Garrett Diamond. That's a lot of episodes. Of Sifter app. <laughs> or used to be Sifter app, right? Previously Sifter. Previously this Sifter is going to be interesting. Sifter, yeah. And then yeah, we, had, we already had JD on. We had so JD like on. The other side. Yeah, I listened to that. He he did all right. And now you're at Wildbit. I am. So my 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 primary question, and you're you're an employee of Wildbit, right? You're not like a co-founder or anything. Oh, no. Right? You no. cannot have, Wait, wait. You can't have any business questions. This is sounds businessy. I let hope me, you're let not me getting ask, the businessy let questions. Let me put some credibility to the show for half a second. Oh, fine. <laughs> so you're uh, 
my biggest thing is how 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 did it feel? And you were running Sith for what, like six years, eight years, something like that. Um, eight years. How did it feel going back to being an employee after that much? Um, at times it's you know it's a little not unusual. Uh, no, it's just, it's different. Uh, with this though. I knew Natalie and Chris through Sifter and Sifter integrated with one of the Wildbit products and used Postmark to send email. So I knew them and I interacted with support and, you know, so I knew them before I reached out to them and it was very much a, I just was talking to them about, Oh, Hey, I'm kind of thinking about selling Sifter. I don't really know. Um, with all my medical issues, I'm just kind of tapped. And, uh, so then and I talked to them before about this a couple of years before when I was in the hospital for about a week. And at the time, then it just didn't make sense. So this was like an ongoing conversation with them. So it, it's it's weird in that, yes, I'm employed. But at the same time, it wasn't something where I went to a big corporation or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I still I mean, I'm not responsible for as many things at Wildbit, obviously, but I can, you know, I've got input on things and, you know, we all kind of collaborate. It's still small. We all still work together. So it's a lot of the things I liked about it and much fewer of the things that I didn't like. Mm. And I think someday the entrepreneur in me will probably break out again. But for now and for the foreseeable future, I I can't even imagine. Like it's been it's been so nice. Really. But I think a lot of that has to do with being in the right place with the right team. And yeah. people, See, you, you know, got to get hired in a way where they hire you for you by name. Not like yeah. you dump resumes into a pool and go jump hunting in the application process. Yeah. Now in that case, that, that would have felt really weird. I don't think I would have lasted. Right. Like if I got a job that way or even a, just a bigger company, I just, I would have been two weeks in and probably been like, I can't handle this. Right. Like the red tape and the bureaucracy and, um, but being at a smaller company, I think it's, a, it was a much more natural transition. Have you taken a vacation yet? Um, yes and no. I've used a lot of my vacation dealing with my foot. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had some. I've had some vacations. We. Uh, I'm just wondering how, like, being away from, like, you know, when obviously when you're running your own business and you're on vacation or whatever, you're dealing with medical stuff, any of it, you're yeah. always kind of working. So if you've had that, like, when you're, we did, we should talk about your your foot, but um, just so people are aware, but. Like even with that stuff, like, are you still kind of working or are you able to like put that aside? No, no. Is it easier? At Wildbit, I'm doing pretty much just marketing and there I have very little operational responsibilities, if any, really. Um, And so when I'm not working for the first time in eight years, I'm actually not working. My brain's, (laughs) my brain will still think about stuff, you know, just kind of wired that way. We all do, I think after hours, but um, I, there's none of that burden, none of that. Oh my God, I'm not doing enough. And if anything, like that's one of the really cool things at Wildbit is the team and especially Chris and Natalie are really good about like work can wait, like go home, be with your family. Uh, you know, don't get caught up in work. Don't, don't take, I mean, we all kind of, I say we all, many of us work from home, but, um, beyond that, like they try to be really good about like, look, quit, just stop for the day. You're done you know, quit thinking about it. And so because of that, it really has helped because I never did that for myself. So they're, they're much better employers than I was for myself. And I think that's helped in a lot of ways just because they get it and kind of help us think better that way. 
Yeah, Natalie. Was it Natalie talked about that at uh, Bacon Biz, right? About how they run that family-oriented yeah. wild bit. Yeah. 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 Well, and so many companies talk about that, and you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, but you realize really quickly how true it is. Like every time I've been to Philly to work up there for a week or whatever, um, you know, we'll, they'll have like literally family nights. All the kids are there. It's not just employees and spouses. It's like all the kids come, all the kids play together. And, you know, it's just truly like family stuff all the time. We have a uh, Brawl and Path, the social network and like share mm-hmm. photos on there. And it's like everybody and their wives and kids. And so like, since we're remote, it's a way for us to all kind of, you know, be more familiar with each other's families and, uh, you know, no names and faces and that kind of thing. So there's just a lot of little details, little things that we do. And you kind of start to really like, oh, this is kind of more like a family. And, you know, it's it's just it's different than, you know, your typical corporate job kind of deal. This week, Bootstrapped is sponsored by Linode. Um, if you're looking for virtual machine hosting, I uh, definitely ought to check out Linode. They have eight data centers. Um, all the plan, the base plan starts at two gigabytes of RAM, and it goes up from there into very large servers. Really straightforward pricing, 10 bucks a month um, to start. And that's actually built hourly. So if you want to spin up a, a server just to play around with a side project and spin it back down, you're only going to pay, uh, you know, for the fraction of, of time you used on that. Um, they recently switched uh, from Zen to KVM and have seen, you know, 300% performance increases uh, with the servers uh, we use at Userscape um, run on Linode. And we did that conversion. And it's amazing. We were able to actually lower uh, the size of many of our servers down to just the base two gigabyte server because they're just ridiculously fast now. So that's really been awesome. It's all uh, 40 gig uh, network. It's all modern Intel processors. It's all native SSD storage, 24-7, 365 support. Uh, seven-day money-back guarantee if you don't like it, which I don't know why you wouldn't. Um, again, I've been hosted there for, I don't even know how long, five years or more um, with about 10 servers. Andre uses it as well. Uh, so definitely, definitely highly recommend Linode. Um, and uh, they've actually given us a, an offer code, bootstrapped20. So if you use that code, you'll get 20 bucks off um, when you sign up for an account in Linode. So basically, uh, you can get your first two months for free. Uh, or even if you're only using it for partial months, it could be last you longer than that, obviously. So definitely check that out. Offer code bootstrapped20. And we'll have that in the show notes uh, as well as a link right to that. That that applies a discount for you. So go ahead and just check it out in the show notes. Click on it. Um, our big, big thanks to Linode for always being a huge supporter of the show. And uh, I really can't highly recommend them enough. We use them for uh, everything at Userscape. And uh, it's been been rock solid. So thanks a lot to Linode for sponsoring the show. So um, before we get too deep into all the other stuff, I mean, maybe you should just tell the audience a little bit about your medical situation because I think it kind of underlies a lot of what went on with Sifter and moving yeah. the wild bit and everything. So I think, uh, and you've been very open about it. So I think it'd be great to kind of get you know get that story. Yeah, totally. So about three and a half years ago. I had a minor surgery to help fix my ankle so I could keep playing basketball without pain. Um, The surgery went fine. After the surgery, I got frostbite. That kind of got worse and worse um, and progressed and ended up having about nine surgeries in a period of, well, I think eight surgeries in a period of like three months. And then uh, after I recovered from all that, 
my foot was in bad shape. And so I started thinking about amputation and of course, every, you know, all my friends and family I talked to, they're like, wait, what? So got your foot. What's wrong with you? Um, so I started talking to doctors about that. The doctors pretty heavily pushed me towards trying an ankle fusion. Uh, and I researched that and was not excited about that because being somebody who's active and wants to, you know, play sports and hike and do stuff and ankle fusions, they can work, but they're not great because they lock your ankle in place. So you right. can't jump, you can't run. Um, and in a lot of ways, an ankle fusion functionally is worse than a prosthesis. And mm. so I'd done all the research and decided like, I really, I think amputation is the right thing. But the doctors and friends and family kind of weighed on me and I was like, all right, I'll try this ankle fusion thing. Worst case scenario, it cost me six months to a year. And uh, then I can always amputate afterwards. Whereas once you amputate, you're done. Right. There's no <laughs> so going back on that. There's no control Z there or command Z. Um, so did that. And eventually, uh, and is actually, let's see, that would have been about a year and a half ago. No, at this point, I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago, did the ankle mm. fusion, uh, went through with that, hated it, uh, still had a lot of pain. Walking mm. was a struggle. Uh, you know, it just, it wasn't pleasant. So finally I was like, all right, you know, is everybody cool if I go ahead and amputate? <laughs> and, um, so, you know, finally went ahead, got everything lined up, went through with it. Uh, that was about three months ago now. Um, and so I'm three months into recovering from amputation and I'm doing better than I was six months after my fusion and uh-huh. my goal, maybe a little crazy and my prosthetist and might yell at me for being aggressive, but like, I want to be able to January 1st run a mile, not, not well, not fast, just do it. I can't even run a mile with toe feet. (laughs) (laughs) And so we'll see, but I mean, it's, it's going well. It's, it's, I can't complain at all. Uh, it's so much better. You know, it's a little inconvenient at times, but Mm. in the grand scheme of things, it's such a trivial inconvenience compared to, I mean, before I just, I couldn't do anything I wanted to do. I couldn't go run and play with my kids. Like, you know, just things that was like, I had to sit there and watch because I was just in too much pain and I didn't yeah. want to get on the, the, the pain pill track and just right. take painkillers all the time. So, um, and talking to doctors, most people who are, who are active and really want to be like outdoors and doing stuff, ankle fusions tend not to be very fulfilling. So I'm not alone in, in my route. Plenty of people right. kind of go this route. And, uh, that's, that's pretty much the story. That's amazing. I know. I mean, it's just, uh, my father was an orthotist, so he worked with like, or is, um, you know, prostheses and all that. And so I'd always be at his lab when I was a little kid. So it's like, you know, late seventies, early eighties. And, uh, it's just amazing. Like now they have, you know, the material and everything they have now, like you definitely, those ones from the eighties, you weren't running anywhere. Like it's a big, heavy plastic thing that is definitely not, it's probably, you know, worse than the ankle fusion. Right. But now it's like, Oh, it's like, that's unbelievable what you can do. And, uh, how they've got the tech there to make that possible that you can, you know, live, you know, completely normal basically with, you know, obviously some inconveniences, but, but far superior to what you were experiencing. It's wild. And talking to other amputees before, you know, kind of leading up to this. And since then, um, it apparently like in what's really the last five years, it's kind of just been real huge leaps and bounds and it's really starting to kind of pick up pace and, uh, lots of just technology kind of finally coming of age and being useful and, 
uh, robotics in the next 10 years as batteries keep improving and that kind of stuff, the, mm. that's going to get more common. Those costs are going to come down. So plus those, those new ones look dope. You just look like a cyborg. <laughs> <laughs> it does. It looks like high it's tech. The, a lot has changed. That's another one of those things where like, it used to be something that people were very self-conscious of. And I think with yeah. Paralympics and so much, um, you know, people writing books and, and sharing their experience and, you know, because of the technologies, you can actually have a prosthesis and be a pretty high level athlete. And so now there's no more kind of stigma. It's like, no, you're just as capable. Like there's, you know, every now and then people, there's a little bit of pity in their voice. You can tell, and it's like, Hey, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. Like <laughs> you're better you than know, you were yeah, a year ago. It's, right? it's kind of crummy. Like I wouldn't choose it, but like right. now that I'm here, you know, it's, there's a lot of worse things, you know, to deal with or that could happen. So. No, I remember, I think it was like three years ago or two years ago that I first met you in person at Bacon, the first Bacon Biz. And yeah. I think you were just like, had started going through this stuff then and, it's, and you know, it sounded like it was kind of rough even back then. And yeah. then you've obviously been so much, you know, all the surgeries well, and everything going on since then. So in hindsight, I remember that because we were right outside a restaurant, which is literally like a hundred feet from wild bit. Right. Yep. They may not have moved into those offices at that point, but that's so now I walk by that restaurant all the time when I'm in Philly. <laughs> so. That was a good restaurant. I don't know. It was called yeah. something with an A, right? I don't remember. Oh, I forget. I just recognize it because it was such a cool yeah. atmosphere and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, wait. No, I had something I was going to say and I can't remember. But uh. how about some background for people who don't know you, for people who don't know Garrett? Some background before Sifter. What did you do before Sifter? Yeah, what did you do before Sifter? I don't know what you did before Sifter. I did Sifter. a whole lot of consulting, uh, front-end development, uh, information architecture, uh, some light user research stuff. So lots of, from probably, I guess, 2000 to 2008, uh, was pretty much all consulting and around in and around those areas. So where did Sifter come from? Sifter fermented for a long time. When I graduated from from college, I went straight to work for Sapient. And Sapient was a pretty well-established company at that time, pretty big. They had their processes. They really ran a tight ship, um, at least in terms of development processes. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> that was the first time. So basically, like my first major projects out of college, I was immediately exposed to a very, very well-oiled machine in terms of quality control and bug tracking. Mm -hmm. And the way we did a code freeze and everybody tested and then, you know, we did triaging and all this stuff for the issues. And so I was exposed to that. I really didn't think anything of it. I was just like, oh, cool. This is how it works. Awesome. Right. And then uh, at my next job, a smaller company, they were they had outsourced a uh, building of an application. You know, and this is back in 2001 before a lot of this stuff was easier. And right. uh, so I, I show up and we're kind of, they're kind of wrapping up development. And so I reach out to the, the team that's building it. I'm like, yeah, so uh, where do I go to report bugs? And they go, oh, okay, yeah, we'll send you some information. So I was like, all right, cool. And they send me an email with a PDF <laughs> and say, fill this out and fax it to this phone number. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I kind of was just, I was just dumbfounded. And so at that point, it's kind of that compare and contrasting, like the really good process and the really bad process. For whatever reason, it struck a chord. And for the rest of my career, I was just really fascinated by workflow and process around issue tracking. And the more teams I worked with and in consulting, you end up working with a lot of different teams. I just saw a lot of good and bad of both worlds and just kept being more and more fascinated by it. Um, 
and we got to a point, you know, there's always been a lot of issue trackers out there, but they're more complex and they're designed for fully technical teams. And we were doing consulting with non-technical clients and they would never, like we'd try these bug trackers and we'd show it to them and they'd be like, oh, okay, yeah. And then they'd never use it. Right. Like I, I'm not going near that thing with a 10 foot pole. They like log one issue and then they just say, I don't like that thing. And they'll just email issues to us and things slipped through the cracks all the time because they weren't getting logged correctly. And when they did get logged, they weren't like we would log them. And then, so the client would never be looped back in when we started discussing it and trying to clarify things. And it was just a mess. The whole process yeah. was a mess. And bug trackers kind of the way I've, and a lot of tools are this way, especially processor workflow tools where it's, it's like, it's just the Goldilocks problem, right? It's like, this one's too hot. This one's too cold. This one's just right. And for every team, that's different. No matter what phase you're at, smaller teams want something like this. Bigger teams want something like this. Um, Remote teams kind of, they have their own issues. And so that's, there's so many of these tools out there, but there wasn't, at least at the time, there weren't any tools that, in, in the issue tracking world that gave a damn at all about user experience yeah. and that really wanted something easy to use. And so I was like, I'm just going to build something that has a whole hell of a lot less features, but it's easier to use so that people can use it with their clients. So the idea was for small teams or, you know, their, their non-technical boss and that kind of thing and just decided uh-huh. to build that. Um, and so that's kind of where it came out of. Uh, I started building or designing something just kind of on a whim for fun because I just wanted something to design that wasn't, didn't have uh, client hindrances to it. Mm-hmm. And so I started designing something and sharing it, thinking, no, oh, maybe I'll create something open source and just give it away. But the more I started sharing stuff, the more people were like, hey, I like what you're doing. You know, are you going to build this? You know, are you going to sell it? And so people started encouraging me to actually create an app out of it. And at the time I was like, no, no, y'all are crazy. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and the more people talked to me and talked to me, I was like, okay, fine, I'll try it. Um, and it's about that time our company had been acquired um, by EMC and EMC had his big draconian employment agreement. And, uh, I wasn't real thrilled about signing it and people were kind of bugging me to build this. And I was like, all right, well, I'll just quit and kind of freelance and build this in my free time. And so right. it was just kind of a perfect storm of things that led to it. And I built it, you know, it was almost accidental how it all happened in hindsight. And one thing led to another, just kept doing that. And then the medical issues kicked in about, I guess, you know, six years, uh, five, six years in mm. and just kind of wore me down and uh, wasn't as able to give it the time I wanted to. And then by the time it was all through, I was like, you know, I have two little girls. It's like, I want to spend more time with them. I don't want to be distracted by running an app because I was doing it pretty much by myself. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, I was just worn out and it's like, I need to step back, take a break, uh, do something a little less, um, you know, where I've got a team around me that can help me and I'm not everything on my shoulders. So that's one of those things from back in the day there, just like stepping back before even that selling apart is I feel like, I mean, how I started is like the exact same story in the sense of like saw a bad process figured if, you know, if people are using this horrible process for their help desk, you know, some of those people will buy my version or whatever. And the same idea of like, uh, Yes, this is a help desk tool, just like the other 8 million help desk tools. Yeah. But, you know, each, uh, you know, each company has like a slightly different take on what they wanted to do and how it should work and the, the size of their team and all those things. So, you know, there is that room in there for the different, all these different products. And, uh, and then ultimately, yeah, like quitting my job and being like, well, I'm going to build this thing now and I'm just going to, you know, do it. Like, that's what you do is quit your job and 
try to build something. And now I feel like you don't ever hear anybody talking about quitting their job. But I feel like back then, everybody, that's like how you did it is like you quit your job and then you went and did it. Well, <laughs> now I like in hindsight, I would tell, you know, everybody I've talked to, I'm like, don't quit your job. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, it. I don't know if it's a good idea. but and then, I mean, with me too, I didn't purely quit my job because I lined up freelance work yeah, you had and quit my job and transitioned to that. So I was still doing yeah. work. And yeah. then it was simple enough for me to just kind of turn on the freelancing spigot whenever I needed more money. And I would just kind of go oscillate back and forth between freelancing you, and Sifter. But even right, starting your own freelance business is still starting a business. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you still yeah, went and like did that. And I think to me, I guess part of it is the big difference now is like, you could just do it so like the frameworks and everything are so evolved that you can oh, just yeah. build it so much more quickly. You can get to something that kind of works. Whereas, I mean, I spent like four months just making basic stuff work, you know, yeah. and oh. the foundational elements because there was no frameworks. And I mean, Sifter, I think, is on Rails, right? So it had a yeah. little bit of that. But so I was a little before there was web frameworks, but still, it was like, you know, even back to early Rails, you know, still a lot you had to do yourself. And yeah. now there's just packages and the well, frameworks that, so much more advanced and everything else. Billing and I mean, even back then, like all the yeah. exception tracking software, like that was right. just starting to come onto the scene. And I look back now and I'm like, God, I could have built Sifter in like a weekend at first. Right. <laughs> right. It yeah. took me like three or four months, you know. And no, for sure. I always say that that first version of HelpSpot, I'm like, in like two weeks, I could do what took me like four months because basically, just as soon as I install like Laravel, I'm already at like 95% of what I did in the first yeah. four months. So. <laughs> It's, that it's sounds about wild. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, that burnout, it's like, that's a, that's, you know, it's a, it's a totally real. I mean, whether it's medical stuff and, or even just, just running an app that long by yourself is yeah. just, it just weighs on you. you know, well, and I think lot. one or the other I could have handled, right? but the medical stuff kind of just took away a lot of time and attention and energy. Yeah. And, then the sifter started to plateau and I didn't have enough energy left to kind of fight through the plateaus and keep doing it all. And it just, you know, it's just, again, it's a perfect storm of bad timing. And, um, I mean, I'm happy about how it all turned out. I mean, JD has been taking great care of sifter. So selling it to him has been great. Yeah. Um, how was that process from your perspective? Like, how was that? Like, did I forget if you went through a agency or I think you did, so, right? We did uh, originally. So I reached out to FE International and talked to them. That was kind of so Natalie and Chris were like, hey, come work here. I was like, well, I don't even know if I can sell Sifter. And then I, I right. talked to uh, Patrick McKenzie because he had just sold Bingo Card Creator. And I was like, so how'd that go? He's like, it was awesome. Talk to them. So I go, all right, I'll give them a call. And I called them and I was totally skeptical. Like, I don't trust brokers. Like, I don't know. Right. Uh, and they're like, yeah, yeah, you can totally sell this. And like everything they told me was exactly what I wanted to hear. And I was like, and I mean, they didn't know what I was looking to hear. And, but I left it like, that's a little too good to be true. This sounds right. too easy. Like, yeah, they're like, yeah, there's plenty of people out there that are buying apps. And I was like, all right. Um, and so I was like, all right, let's do this. And we went through it and we had some bites and then we had our first buyer and he was, he had made some money, I guess, from technology way back when, and he was doing more traditional business stuff these days and kind of wanted to just diversify his holdings and get something so that he wasn't all in on um, his existing businesses. Mm -hmm. And he, that process was exhausting because we didn't know each other at all. Right. And uh, yeah. there was just a lot of, the lawyers did 
on his side kind of put too much stuff in the paperwork and it just wore me down and kind of one thing after another, little things just kind of chipped away at my confidence. And literally on closing day, there was one last thing and I was just so exhausted and I was like, no, I'm not going to concede that. Like you can, we can finish the deal as it is or not. And we ended up walking away on closing day. Wow. And the coolest thing about that, um, was, and this, this surprised me. And I, like, I always make a point to share this because I wouldn't have expected it. So FE, um, is literally on the verge of getting paid, right? They're a signature away from getting paid for the months of work they put in selling sifter. And I tell them, Hey, I think I want to walk away from this. Right. And they didn't try to, they did not spend one ounce of breath trying to convince me otherwise, even though they were about to get paid and they knew that this could double the amount of work that, well, maybe not double, but significantly increase the amount of work they do. Sure. They may not get as high of a, you know, I might not sell it for as much if we get another offer, another offer, right. Like, or the waiting know, six months for a tap. You know, they, they fully supported the decision and we're like, yeah, I think you're probably making the right decision. And, you know, I would have expected any broker to be like, Oh, just take the deal. God, yeah, get over sure. it. Right. Uh, they totally <laughs> weren't. Uh, they were awesome. And then, JD and I ended up getting introduced through a mutual friend, but Effie had already done all their work, which in a way made it easier for, for JD. I just kind of sent him over the prospectus and mm. uh, we talked and we, we basically settled it all over text message and then pulled Effie in and let Effie handle all the details. Um, you know, we did the due, due diligence and the tr- traditional stuff, but it was basically um, compared to the first deal, which, you know, there was escrow involved. The deal was complicated. Mm. Uh, you know, there was a hold back and then there was consulting agreement and NDA and, or not NDA, right. non-compete, all these layers to the deal. And with JD, yeah. it was like just straight cash, no escrow. And that was that. And so, yeah. you know, it was just easier trusting each other. And like, even now, whenever we're in the same city for whatever reason, like we've uh, multiple times now caught up and hung out, you know, and, it's just That's nice, cool. I think, being on the same page, and uh, they've been taking good care of the business. So, it, God, it makes all the difference in the world to find the right buyer. Right. Yeah, I think we, we ended up smart with that. We ended up making a lot less money off of selling to him too. Um, mm. He probably got a little bit of uh, of a discount just because I felt good about him and really wanted him. Felt good about the future for our customers with him yeah. in charge. Yeah. Uh, we'll be back next week with part two of our interview with Garrett Diamond from Wildbit, formerly of Sifter.